Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer, all you thinkikins out there. I don't know, I'm still working on the name of what the audience should be what nickname we should give the audience. Uh, I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I am joined, uh, though not with a microphone this time, from from the from a remote on the surface of the moon, I'm joined by Ellie Mistal. I'm wearing white, and I don't care that it's after Labor Day because I'm an adult. Can we explain why I'm on, why I'm on the remote mic here? Sure. It's going could... to sound like it's my fault, but it's really not, is it? Oh, it's totally my fault. Uh, so I have uh, unfortunately broken uh, my foot and messed up my ankle and I'm not able to move. So to record this podcast, I requested that all of the materials that I will need be brought from the office to me at home. And uh, people were a little overzealous and not only brought all my stuff, but all the stuff Ellie needs to record from the office. So now he has no ability to record. So he's on a phone. It all works out. I'm sorry about your foot. It is somewhat hilarious, but oh, yeah, I mean, fair enough. Uh, but yeah, no, it is high comedy that I'm injured, and we should all take a second to laugh at it. Let's see. Yeah, it, there's our joke sound effect. All right. So yeah, you wanted to say something, Ellie? Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, if you've been uh, following the news at all in the past uh, few weeks, uh, apparently God is angry at us and has said about the uh, the, the horrible um, weather. Um, aided by his um, right-hand man, climate change, um, to destroy us. The, 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 all the hurricanes um, and the potential uh, weather disasters, I think, have, have really brought into stark relief how stupid the, ABA, the, the bar rules are um, when it comes to um, people from different states being allowed to practice to help victims um, from these tragedies and disasters. We wrote a story a couple weeks ago. Um, Texas had to waive their rules to allow people to do pro bono legal aid work um, in the wake of Harvey. Um, why does that? Why? Why do we have to live in a world where that has to happen? Right? Like, why has Florida waived their rules? Not yet, I don't believe. Do they have to? Do we have to go through a whole court procedure? Um, if because you're a lawyer in Georgia and you want to help out um, some people suffering in Florida, but you can't because you're not. It's ridiculous and it's antiquated and it needs to stop. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to be said for that. There should be a mechanism by which they can streamline bringing people in to help when disasters cause a major access to justice gap. That said, that further, I would say to all pro, I would say for all pro bono. I mean, it's pro yeah, bono. No, You're having, uh, you have lawyers who are willing to work for free and help. And the reason why that's a little troubling is that we do have stories, in particular in immigration cases, but elsewhere where lawyers come in and do a bad job. They aren't held accountable. They, you know, steal money from the uh, from the clients, put the clients in a bad place by not telling them what's going on. There's a reason why we have a regulation system to make sure that even people who are donating their time are doing it effectively. So I think we still I need to agree with that, but that's not that's that's, yeah. that's not state by state. That's that's because we have some shady lawyers out there. 
um, that need to be caught and punished. That's not because a lawyer from, from, from Georgia is, is helping out a person with an immigration issue in Florida. Sure, but you don't want to situate you. a bad lawyer is helping out a person. Your, your kind of argument for pure lawlessness as far as being able to practice cross-border opens the door to an opportunist from somewhere else coming in and taking advantage of people. There should be a mechanism of understanding who is and is not practicing within the state for whatever reasons. But yes, it needs to be more open. I think that's true. I just am holding back on the kind of anarchic solution that you're throwing out there. I will accept our partial accord because you only have partial uh, the, the partial amount of partially heat, ambulatory. So. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair enough. Partially ambulatory. Um, yeah. So um, we're gonna take a quick break right now because we can, and uh, we'll be right back. Starting your own solo practice is tough. Hi, my name is Adriana Linares, and I host a show called New Solo on Legal Talk Network. In it, I interview successful lawyers who've gone solo and experts in marketing, management, technology, and everything else you need to know that you didn't learn in law school. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, or at LegalTalkNetwork.com. All right, we're back. And uh, today, well, what what are we talking about today, Ellie? We're talking about law schools. We're talking about jobs. Well, today, look. Today we are at the start of a we are just at the start of a new um, law school year, and so we thought it would be great for our, our law school um, listeners, especially, um, to bring on Ray English. Um, he is the uh, career services director at Arizona State University um, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Um, I have uh, I, I will personally vouch for him. I've been to uh, a couple of his now presentations. Um, he's one of my uh, favorite career services person um, to talk to because he's very thoughtful about it. And so we thought we'd li- like to have him on. How you doing, right? I am doing fine, and thank you for inviting me. Thank you for thank you for coming. But OCI, I'm always interested um, in how um, law students are, are getting a job. But I will set you up with what I think is a softball. Uh, when I talk to law students, I say that by this time in this, so they've been back for what two weeks. I say that by this time in the semester, you've talked to the registrar, you've talked to the bursar, you've got your classes all set. The next person you should talk to is you, Ray, is, is your career services um, officers, um, and start as a 1L and start the process of finding a job. What do you, what do you say to that? I 100% agree. And when you say start the process of finding a job, you know, the question is, what does that mean? That means finding yourself, trying to figure out what exactly you want to do when you graduate. And we find that sometimes that's the first question we've got to answer because most people don't really have a good idea of that. Um, we started off a little bit talking about you know, hurricane relief. And so my super cynical question is, in your experience, how long does it take for your average 1L um, to go from, man, I went to law school to help people, um, to go from there to who's going to pay me $160,000, a year um, working for a big firm? Like, like how, what's the delta on that amount of time? Actually, that, that assumes you know, that most people come to law school to help people. But generally, you know, after that first year, <laughs> You know, they start realizing, you know, especially when the first grades come out, you know, people hedge their bets. You know, they know that those high paying jobs require good grades. So they hedge their bets a little bit. You know, well, I just want to serve people. But if they do well that first semester, things change real quickly when they realize they're competitive for some of those jobs. And of course, that's a small percentage of students. But most students who have, who come to school with the ideal of really helping people mostly maintain that. 
<laughs> yeah, and I think that's true. And um, I, I also was going to say that, it, I, just as a side question, I don't know, do you think there's a little bit of a difference in those populations given you know, you work at a state institution as opposed to a private school? It would seem like there's probably more people who are able to go to your school who aren't going to find themselves in mountains of debt at the end, uh, which gives them a little bit more flexibility. I agree. That's a big change. I mean, having been in Atlanta for seven years, and I work with all the law schools there, uh, and, you know, Emory is there. And obviously, the feedback is the more you pay for your law school, the more important how much you make <laughs> after law school becomes. And so that is a, a little bit unique challenge if you're paying $50,000 a year for law school and you're borrowing money. So, yeah, at that point, you got to kind of keep your eye on the ball on how much money I'm going to make in order to afford to pay my loan payments. Um, you said, uh, let's circle back to something. You said uh, you, that part of the process, especially for the one all, is, is finding yourself. This conversation kind of plays into that. What? Talk a little bit more about that. What, what kinds of things um, can you start thinking about um, and start working on kind of even as a one l to really – um, start helping you make what's going to end up being a, a crucial career decision down the road. Yeah, you know, one of the things, the first question I always ask one else is, what do you like to do? Before you start focusing on practice area, tax, whatever it may be, what do you like to do? Do you like to argue? Do you like to write? Do you like to research? Or are you somebody that says, I want to go to my office, do my job, go home. I don't want to deal with people. You need to understand yourself because once you do that, you can begin to identify multiple practice areas that may meet your demand or your desires. And are you thinking about that? Uh, you know, are you thinking about uh, helping people kind of choose that practice area, um, or is it also just you know, just kind of question of size of firm or or, or or kind of clients? It kind of plays out once you start thinking about what you want to do. Then that kind of begins to filter out which employers make sense for you, depending on what they do. Um, here at Arizona State, one of the things I started doing is we send admitted students uh, an assessment, um, which gives them some ideas about what their motivations are, what their skills are in terms of strengths and weaknesses. And it also recommends some potential practice areas that may fit their skill sets. And so we can begin to have that conversation about, you know, what are my skills you know, where do I fit in based on what I want to do, what I'm motivated to do? You know, for example, if you're motivated by money, well, you need to know that straight up. Obviously, that's your motivation. <laughs> Public interest is not the thing for you, you know. <laughs> that's a great point. I, and yeah, I mean, it's it's funny that to think about it in that way, but you're right. You kind of, if, if you're the kind of person that is going to get out of bed because of a paycheck, um, you kind of need to know that as soon as possible. Exactly. Um, um, I think what I deal with, and I think what Joe and I see more on the site, are people who thought that the money would be enough um, to get them out of bed um, every day, or more to the point, not go to bed every night, um, and then later find out that there are, there are, in fact, things in life that they value more um, than the paycheck. And, and for our, you know, and our readers, it's a lot of like trying to get them help them think of different ways to get out of a, of a high-paying job uh, that they got into. You know, and that's why we stress so you don't make that mistake. You know, and that's why we try to talk to one else early on to get them thinking about what it is I really, really want and what's really important to me. Now, if you want that big paycheck, you have to be willing to give something up, like your life, <laughs> you know, quality time with the family. You know, if, if that's something that you're willing to give up, then maybe you can make the six-figure salary right out of law school 
or you decide something else if you determine that quality of life is more important to you. A lot of our listeners um, work on work, work uh, this podcast. Um, they work at kind of small to mid-sized firms. And I'm wondering, you know, one of the things that was interesting uh, about some of the times that I've heard you speak, um, can you talk a little bit about the different challenges in putting people, placing people in those small to mid-sized firms? I feel like, you know, a lot of people understand that, you know, if you want to work in big law, there's a process. There's a there's a wheel. You get on the wheel at the right point. It spits you out. It's all good. If you want to work in public interest, there's actually a process. You know, the, the ACLU has a hiring process. Legal aid has a process. Uh, if you want to clerk, there's a process. If you want to work for that kind of, you know, 10, 12-person law firm, um, you know, it, for your guys, you know, in Flagstaff, like, how do you go about getting that job? You have actually hit a point that is a passion for me, so to speak, you know, and what I think law schools are doing, what I'm trying to do is to actually create those pathways uh, into those small firms. The challenge is small firms hire when they need, you know, unlike big firms and other government agencies and even some uh, public interest employers, like you said, they have a cycle, they have a process. Small firms do not. They hire when they need a body, and you need to be barred most times before they can bring you in because they can't afford to, you know, support you until you get up to, until you pass the bar. So what we what you what we've tried to do here at Arizona State is really develop programs that are basically pipelines, low cost to small firms where they can kind of test drive, you know, get people in, interns, externs in, you know, train them up the way they want to go at a minimal or a low-end cost with the idea that when they get barred, when they graduate, they can bring them on as a full-time associate. So we're in a process, for example, and if I could take a, a few seconds, with a program that we call our 3L Residency Externship. We essentially, uh-huh. for the fall and spring semester of the 3, 3L year, they work 168 hours, three hours of externship credit, and they get paid $15 an hour you know, for both semesters. Uh, we have 18 firms that participated, 25 externs, and actually, I'll, I'll, actually, we have two people already get post-graduation offers from that, and all the participants are small firms, 12 or fewer attorneys. Joe, did you ever look at, uh, when, when you were going through this, did you ever look at uh, working for a firm um, less uh, less huge than Clary? Lord knows I did not. I, I, was, I wanted to check. Well, I... I I mean, I did ultimately work for one, right? So I did not look for anything small coming out. Uh, part of that, the NYU culture, part of it, the, the NYU career office, very effective at getting you into those big firms. So I went into the big firm for my, you know, do it, get, getting barred, learning the ropes, three years of the grind, uh, but learning from people who've been doing it a long time how to do it. And then as I developed within that, and this, going back to something I think that Ray said that I want to circle back to in a bit about like knowing who you are, it's not just whether or not you want to make the money, it's also what are you going to do? I mean, I more or less became a litigator because I understood what Perry Mason looked like. I didn't know what <laughs> what, what do people do in these other, what is ERISA? So I didn't do any of those other things because I had no idea what they would be. Um, but even within litigation, finding my niche, like, oh, this is the kind of litigation I want to do. This is the kind of practice I'm interested in. That's what led me to move to a firm that at the time had uh, fewer than 20 lawyers after I left Cleary. And I practiced there for eight years in a small firm, boutique firm doing white collar work because I found that I was 
had an aptitude for the white collar criminal stuff within the broader scope of litigation. You know, yeah, you know, I'm not gonna let you get through a, a whole uh, ATL interview without without uh, throwing some shade. So here, here <laughs> here's what I got. Whose job do you think it is to help students learn how to help law students learn not just how to you know file a brief or argue uh, do a pilot argument, um, but to learn how to run a business, get clients. Um, 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 really be able to, to be their own small business person. Is that a law school job? Is that an on-the-job training? Do we need to go back to an apprenticeship model? Because like, like, that's clearly a gap that people are, you know, people are graduating without that knowledge. Who needs to give them that knowledge? You know, are you asking pre-recession or post-recession? <laughs> <That's> the... <laughs> Let's just go new normal. Let's just yeah. go straight new normal. Yeah, yeah, and that is that's the debate going on within um, law schools. And now, you know, traditionally, law firms bore the burden of training lawyers and law schools taught law. Now, those employers are like, no, we don't have time, you know, or the you know, resources to train lawyers how to do that. So now it's shifting back to the law school, and you'll hear a lot of you know incubator programs, more clinical programs, you know, all kinds of programs being adopted by law schools in order to do exactly what you said, teach them the business of law, and it, which traditionally hasn't been an emphasis of law schools. So I think law schools, whether they like it or not, are being tasked with training students to be lawyers beyond law. Which, so Joe, you were going to circle back to the thing to the yeah, but first, moving to the law school, taking on those responsibilities is stress on the law school too. It's now the law school has to learn to do something that it hadn't been doing for a long time. Uh, it had to bring on has to bring on more people uh, who have the specialty to teach those skills. Uh, it it's kind of a it's it's a problem for the way in which we the legal industry operate, uh, but. That was where I wanted – that was just the thing I wanted to say to that. And then I did want to circle back to the idea of learning who you are. Back to my story about having not understood anything but litigation. Like how do you how do you reach out and teach people in 1L classes, which, you know, even contracts is litigation at the 1L level. Uh, everything is litigation-based. That's kind of the downside of the casebook method. How do you get across to them – you know, before you go into this interviewing thing, you might really enjoy the idea of being an ERISA lawyer, just to pick that one at random, uh, and teaching them like, oh, there's this thing over here that you won't know about for years, but unfortunately, you might have to know ex everything about it before your 2L year because you're going to have to interview. I think the key to doing that is starting the dialogue early in the career, in the law school career. You know, part of the reason why I send that uh, assessment out before they get here, usually they're eager. They've decided they want to go and they read anything and do anything you tell them to do, you know, because they're eager to do something. And I want them to start to think about those areas. The, the beauty of the assessment is it starts giving them a, a window into, oh, wow, you know, I thought Perry Mason or Matlock was you know, the, the law, you know, that was a lawyer, what I see on television, but now I begin to understand that there's all these other areas, you know, that may be of interest. And so it's incumbent on our office, career services office, to actually begin to expose students to those other areas and to really force them to ask the question, what do I really want to do? You know, and that's the question that I didn't ask when I went to law school. I just went to law school thinking like, hey, I'm gonna be a lawyer. You know, and you know, really not thinking about 
what that really meant and what how many different aspects are connected to the ideal of the law. Oh, I was going to say that like it, I took property very late uh, in my 1L year, just the way our things work. And I'd already at that point started going to events and learning litigation departments because that's what I thought it was. And by the time I ended property, a small part of me was like, well, well I should really consider this trusted estates thing because I'm really, it, it seems fun. It's interesting. I, I'm good at it. But by then, too much time had kind of been invested, and I was already yep. down the litigation road. Hey, okay, Joe, if I can give you a quick story on that same aspect. When I yeah. first got to Arizona State, I, I was in the cafeteria. I, I struck up a conversation with a student. He was a second-year student. I asked him, what are you doing for the summer? He said, well, I'm going to do this litigation thing. I said, well, is that what you want to do? He said, well, not really. I said, well, what do you want to do? Well, I really want to do wills, trusts, and estates. Oh, and wow. Said, why aren't you doing it? He said, well, <laughs> I fell into litigation. My 1L, I did this, and I got the job here. So it seemed, it seemed like the pathway that was laid out for me. you know. And he really wanted to do wills, trusts, and estates. I'm like, well, why aren't you pursuing that? You know, and I, when I got back to my office, it just so happens that somebody had posted a position looking for a law clerk in a wills and estate, trust and estate firm. So I forwarded to him and said, hey, you know, you need to apply for this job if this is what you really want to do. No one had ever asked him that question. You know, what is it you really want to do? I want to jump ahead a little bit to, to 3L year. Um, hopefully, you're 1L and you're, you're listening and you're, and you're going to think about this uh, um, in a self-assessment kind of way. Hopefully, you're 2L, you found your job, big law, small law, whatever, you found your thing. Ray, is there such a thing as the 3L hiring market? Is, is that something that just is, is gone now um, that went away during the recession and is just never coming back? Actually, I would venture to say it, it, it exists more now than it did in the past. You know, when, when I was in law school and probably when you guys were in law school, nobody hired, uh, maybe in government hired in, in the third year. Um, but now we're seeing more things come about in the third year, especially in those quasi-legal areas like compliance you know, that's a huge booming area, employment stuff. So we're starting to see more opportunities for 3Ls in certain categories and certain areas of the law. But also as we push forward, you know, with small firms, you know, small firms are another area that if they're going to hire, that's when they're going to hire. You know, somebody who's approaching the bar, approaching the end of the legal law school career, and will be ready to to practice law. So I think there is a growing third year employment market out there. That's that's hopeful. No, I was just going to say that there's also the way in which at, at post recession, there's yes. more of those small and mid sized folks who don't want to invest in somebody till they see more than one semester's worth of grades. Absolutely. My other question was going to be, what kind of services um, do you, can be offered, I guess is really the, the best way of putting it, um, to, to, I wanted to call them 4Ls, right? People, they're out, they're, they're, they're in, in the world, they may, now maybe they want to make a career change. Um, do you have a lot of alumni career counseling? I, I know that, that it, it was very helpful for me when I was, when I was leaving my firm. Um, to go back to my law school and and just talk to again the career people, um, uh, just about what other options um, there were, you know, as opposed to like a recruiter who's just going to, you know, headhunt me to have give me my same job somewhere else. Um, to really kind of go back to first principles and talk to um, the recruiting people at my law school is that still is that still a thing that happens um, in the new market? I think it's happening more and more. Um, 
most law schools do permit their alumni to come back and, and use the services of career services, but most folks don't realize that. I mean, we here at Arizona State, we have a, a big campaign, Law for Life, you know, where we encourage and let alumni know that they're always free to come back and utilize this, the services provided by the school, including career services. And I think we have more and more of that happening because of the turnovers at jobs, people are staying shorter times at different positions. And so I think law schools are beginning to recognize that's a service they have to provide and alumni are expecting it. My, my final one for you, and it, the, honestly, honestly, if you don't want to answer, it's okay. Nobody's <laughs> going to think less of you. Uh, <laughs> but if you had an opinion on, from a career services, from a job getting perspective, on the for-profit law school situation. I would love to hear it. I think there is, in fact, a niche for those law schools. I mean, I really think there's a, a certain group really? of, you know, wannabe lawyers, you know, maybe they work full-time, maybe, they, you know, you know, they're not necessarily the strongest candidates, you know, on the LSAT, you know, but they could be great lawyers. Yeah, so there is a niche there. The challenge is the tension between providing, you know, for that niche and making a profit, you know, in that regard. I mean, I worked uh, at a small law school. Uh, I was teaching at a small law school whose main goal was to provide lawyers for the Appalachia region. You know, so those students were never going to go to large law firms or that's not what their goals were. And they were kind of on the, you know, not the strongest LSAT scores necessarily, not the strongest academics necessarily, but they were committed to the area and would make and did make excellent lawyers. So there's those students that, like for example, Arizona State, you know, they don't quite make the the, the numbers that we need to get in, but that doesn't mean they can't be great lawyers. And so there's got to be some place for them to go, you know, and that's where those for-profit firms can play a role only if they don't take advantage of people. And that's the problem. People get greedy, you know, they want to make a bunch of money and they take advantage of people. But for a for-profit firm or a for-profit law school that's really trying to do the right thing, there's a niche for that. I, I think that is that is a nice, positive way to end. <laughs> um, I, mean, I think that, that is, that is the, right, that's, the, that's, that's what they're selling. And that's, that's the best possible spin. And I think that, you know, uh, I don't like it when I criticize for-profit law schools when people tell me like, "Oh, I just don't want people to fulfill their dreams." Fulfill your dreams. I like dreams. That's awesome. But like, I don't, I don't want to see people um, be taken advantage of. People who will not be able um, to pass the bar um, going into half a million dollars, a quarter of a million dollars. I mean, uh, worth of debt, just that's not fulfilling a dream. That's living a nightmare. So. I totally agree. Yeah, but the flip side is if you don't have those options, then these folks will never go to law school and never have the opportunity to, to serve a community that needs to be served. So there's that tension between that fulfilling that need and the cost and the benefits and the for-profit firms. And I just think for-profit law schools got a little greedy. <laughs> and it, it, they got burned. Wouldn't yeah. be the first time. <laughs> Not English, thank you so much for, for, for joining us. My pleasure. Yeah, this is great. To, to all law students, who, or actually even to the extent we have pre-law listeners, and I know we have a few of you, this is, this is a very important episode to, uh, to keep going back to because you need to start thinking about your 
future career even before you show up at law school because it comes at you way faster than you think. Yes, it does. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. I want to thank everyone for listening. Everyone should be subscribing to us on your podcast subscription service of your choice. Uh, you should be giving us reviews on said uh said service uh not just giving us the stars or whatever but writing something to talk about how awesome we are you should tell everyone you know to listen those sorts of things you should follow us on twitter i'm at joseph patrice he's at lenyc we're at above the law.com if you want to read our musings every day i wrote about motel six today that was that was all i did <laughs> we'll let that on for you yeah no and it was actually out in your out in your neck of the woods, it was. Uh, there's a couple of Motel Sixes in Phoenix that are ratting out guests to ICE. Basically, pe- people check in that they suspect of may- being undocumented, and they're calling ICE on them. Uh, so is what the allegations are. So I wrote a quick piece on that. Uh, I didn't read that yet because that would have been the whole running gears. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Thank you, guys. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you on another episode of Thinking Like a Lawyer, folks. See you later. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.